We have mentioned a number of times in this series of sermons that the second half of Colossians is a very practical part of the book. It has to do with our duty to the Lord. The first two chapters chiefly emphasize doctrine. Chapters 3 and 4 chiefly emphasize duty. Now this chapter, chapter 3, records a lot of practical truth that's not only relevant to the individual Christian, but also to the church collectively. We see from verse 12 down to verse 17 that the chief subject brought to our attention is that of harmony in the church. And it culminates in these words in verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. It finishes up then by saying, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, the third thing that we mentioned last week in our message was that The praises of Christ should resound from believers. You see those words, and be ye thankful, there at the end of verse 15. Now, if you're thankful, that ought to be reflected in what you say and in what you sing. And the next couple of verses make that clear. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. So this is obviously teaching for the church collectively in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. The praises of Christ should resound from us. And if we are filled with the Lord's peace in our hearts, if we are filled with his precepts from his word, then we're going to overflow with his praise. There are a number of great truths highlighted here as being vitally important for the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize two things in particular in this message. One is... The word of the Lord. And the other is the worship of the Lord. Hence the message is entitled tonight. God's word and our worship. This is what we're going to focus upon. Let's think first of all of the word of the Lord. Now verse 16 begins. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. I made the point last time and I emphasize it again. This is a reference to the entire Bible. The word of Christ is not just those words that may be highlighted in red or green or whatever the color is in the Gospels in your copy of the Bible. Those are actual words that he spoke in his earthly life and ministry. But those are not the only words of Christ that are found in Scripture. In fact, 
the entire scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is to be thought of as the word of Christ. The Bible in its entirety is the word of Christ. There are some apostates, some liberals, theologically, who have tried to set Jesus against Paul. They have tried to set the New Testament, Jesus, against the God of the Old Testament. But however they try to do that, they always fail miserably. Because the whole of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, all the way through, is the Word of Christ. Christ is God. It's the Word of God. So when Paul uses this expression, let the Word of Christ dwell in you, he's not just talking about the things that he said that are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This is a reference to the entire Scriptures. And it is a reference to the Gospel. And once again, when we talk about the Gospel, there are two usages of that word that we always should reflect upon. There's the more narrow definition of the Gospel. It's a message of salvation, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Gospel is actually a body of doctrine. So in preaching the Gospel, you're not just preaching a narrow message. You're preaching the broad scope of Scripture. It is all the Gospel. And so when we think about the Word of Christ and its place in the life of the church and of individual Christians, we must think about its residence. Notice here the term, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. The word dwell has to do with being at home. You could read this, let the word of Christ be at home in your hearts. Let it find a home in your soul. Now how does that happen? How does the word of God find a residence within your heart? Well, by reading it. My pastor used to say the Bible opens to reading. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, give attendance to reading. Jesus said, search the scriptures. The Bible also says, seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. It's important that we read the Bible. Because it's the word of Christ. But also we should study the Bible. Think about it. Mull it over in our minds. Some have referred to chewing the cud spiritually. You know what a cow does when it eats grass? It lays about in the meadow afterwards and it regurgitates all the stuff that's gone into its however many stomachs it has and it chews the cud. As believers, we're to chew the cud. Going over and over and over in our minds what we've read, what we've studied. And of course, there's memorizing the Word of Christ. And this is not just for children, but it's especially important for children. Children are capable of learning all manner of things and learning them very quickly. And one of the things that children can learn is the Scriptures. They can memorize the Scriptures. And when they do so, it stays with them throughout their lives. I remember much of what I was taught as a child. 
I was just reflecting with my elder sister who visited me for a few hours the other day upon a children's meeting that we used to attend every week. We can remember things that were taught to us in those days, all those many decades ago. Faithful teachers would make us learn the scriptures. They would teach us the scriptures. Those things we retained, those things we remembered, even to this day. It's important to memorize the scriptures. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It's really important. And meditating upon the word, it's so important. Think of the blessed man in Psalm number 1. He's described as one who not only reads the word of the Lord, but in the Lord's law, it says, doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 1 verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The Lord gave a word to Joshua when he was starting out as the leader of the people of Israel. He said, Joshua 1 verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Meditating upon the Word of God. Thinking about it. Letting it fill your mind and your heart. Oh, there are so many evil things that are there in this world that want to find their place in your mind. We're to fill our minds with the Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse number 11 puts it like this. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. When I was a boy, I was taught to write at the front of my Bible, This book will keep me from sin, but sin will keep me from this book. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. The Word of God must have residence in our hearts. But not only can we say about the Word of the Lord, that it is to find its residence within, but you will notice its result. Its residence dwelling in your heart. Its result. What is the result? Wisdom. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all Wisdom. It makes us wise. First of all, it makes us wise unto salvation, as Timothy puts it. But it also produces wise behavior. When you put the Word of God into practice, when it's in your heart, it's in your mind, and then it becomes part of your life, it produces wise action. Look with me at chapter 4. And verse 4 of Colossians. Here Paul speaking about the mystery of Christ. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. We are to walk then, verse 5, in wisdom 
toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Walk in wisdom. You walk in wisdom when the word of God fills your heart. Colossians 2 verse 23 says, if we read it carefully here, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. There was that which was considered to be wisdom among the Gnostics, among the Greeks. They prided themselves on their so-called wisdom. We've all heard of Plato and Aristotle and these great philosophers. And Paul encountered people like that on Mars Hill, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And people who thought they were so wise, but they weren't wise. They were wise as far as this world was concerned, but they were not wise in spiritual things. Remember how he talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He said, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? 1 Corinthians 1.20 Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Here is true wisdom. True wisdom in terms of God's wisdom. It's not as man teaches. Paul talked a lot about this. You go into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said in verse number 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. See, man's wisdom is opposed to God's wisdom. He said, but it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden mystery, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And he went on to say, in verse 13, These things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual See how much he talked about wisdom? True wisdom. The wisdom that comes from inculcating the word of God within your heart, imbibing its teaching. There are people in this world who have a certain world view. And it's wicked. It's not even scientific anymore. It used to be that they criticized Christians for not believing in science because we didn't accept the nonsense of evolution. But now some of those same people are telling us that men can turn into women, and women can turn into men. And that there are people who are neither. And there's some that can kind of slide in between. They can have this 
gender fluidity. They can move from one sex to the other. What utter nonsense. Where's the science behind that? You'll not read that in any biological textbook. It's a load of nonsense. Or as Dr. Cairns used to say, bunkum. That's what it is. But this is the wisdom of this world. You've got people who have degrees, who are educated people, who can no longer even define what a woman is. It's unbelievable. The craziness. But that's the wisdom of this world. Those that are filled with God's wisdom have a totally different worldview. A totally different view of things because it's God's view of things. You turn to Psalm 119 and you read there from verse 97 down to verse 100. Psalm 119 from verse 97. He says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. There it is. The word taking up residence in his heart. Thou through thy commandments hast made me, notice it, wiser than mine enemies. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Because I keep Thy precepts. Godly wisdom. It's found in the word of the Lord. And if you study your Bible, and you imbibe the teachings of the Bible, you'll not be led astray after the nonsense that's taught by the world. The word of the Lord. But of course there's a a matter that's connected to the word of the Lord, and it's the worship of the Lord. And there is a very real connection, isn't there? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Here is the worship of the Lord. Psalms, hymns, And spiritual songs. Now I want you to note here, he mentions singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing. The singing that's mentioned in this text is certainly relevant to, though it's not exclusively to be applied to, public singing in the congregation in the church. It certainly is connected to that. And we can discover from this text of Scripture and also the companion Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, which virtually says the same thing. If we just go there, Ephesians 5, here it's connected with being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, be not drunk with wine, run in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It means keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I think we learn very quickly from that, in the first place, concerning the worship of the Lord, why we sing. you ever think about that? Why we sing? 
Well, Ephesians 5.19 tells us, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Why do we sing in private? Well, we're singing to the Lord. I think it's a good thing to have a hymn book that's nearby when you're having your devotions. It's a good thing to praise the Lord in song. Even if you don't actually sing, you can think about the words. Some of them are so wonderful. But obviously when we talk about the public services of the house of God, one of the purposes of singing is teaching. Teaching. He actually uses that term, doesn't he? Teaching and admonishing, which is a word that has to do with warning, one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Instruction and the edification or the building up of our own hearts and the hearts of other people. Therefore, we should sing, even if we don't make a very good noise, we're to make a joyful noise, and we must sing truth. We must sing truth. Because nothing, only truth will edify. Nothing but truth will glorify God. We shouldn't be singing nonsense. We should be singing truth. Bible-based singing. Bible-based songs. Notice here the importance of holding fast to the gospel even in our singing. Holding fast to the Word of God, to the Scriptures in our singing. Scriptural truths are to be sung. And I'll say something more about that later. But not only do we sing because we're commanded to be teaching one another, but we also are to sing as a matter of thanksgiving. It says that in Ephesians 5 verse 20. Again, it's repeated in Colossians, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. Or as it is in Colossians 3, verse 17, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him, that is, by Christ. We are to be rendering praise to God. We sang a beautiful song tonight. Praise Him. Praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. For our sins He suffered and bled and died. And if we didn't sing it, we will be singing it. It's a great song. That's what we're here to do. We're here to offer thanksgiving unto the Lord. To offer praise to Him. By our song. But as well as thinking about why we sing, we ought to consider what we sing. I have to say this shouldn't be, but it is a controversial subject in the church of Jesus Christ. We have whole communions of churches, denominations, that have split from other denominations because of their view of singing. There are churches where they will only employ the Psalter. The Psalms of David, or Asaph. In other words, the book of Psalms in metrical version. 
that is suited to singing. Psalms that are set to music. That's all they will sing. In some of those churches, there will be no music at all. No organ, no piano, no musical accompaniment whatsoever. And they sing only psalms. There are other denominations where they will sing only psalms, but they will allow musical accompaniment. Some of the Dutch churches, for example, uh, are in that position. Then there are other churches, such as our own, and we're not exclusive psalmody in our singing. We don't believe that the Bible restricts us only to the psalms of David. So, right away you can tell it's a controversial subject. Christians differ over these things. Now you have to come down on some side of the question. And I am perfectly happy to defend our own church's position, which is that we do not hold to the Psalms only position as regards singing. It is true that in great revivals of the past, the Psalms were employed, but also Wonderful hymns and spiritual songs were born in those times of revival. I do not believe that Psalms only is the position of the Bible. There are those who do. And let me say as kindly as I can, but when someone tells me that as a minister of the gospel, when I announce hymns and spiritual songs, that are not found in the book of Psalms, that I am sinning against the Lord, that I am involved in offering to the Lord strange or false fire. And then I find that some of those same people will come along to services where those hymns and spiritual songs are sung, and they will either stand or sit dumb in the service and do not take part Why? Because they believe that the singing of hymns is sinful. So my question is, why are they even present where sin is taking place? To me, that's some of the greatest rank hypocrisy that I can think of. If I held to that position that someone who wasn't singing psalms only is sinning against the Lord, I wouldn't be anywhere near their services. I certainly wouldn't be there to make a spectacle of myself in front of other people, including children who are wondering, Mom, Dad, why are those people standing there and they're not singing? Is there something wrong with them? Or there's something wrong with us? Of course, the answer would be from them that there's something wrong with us. I'm not saying that people don't hold to this position by conviction. They do. And I appreciate that folks have that conviction, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree with their conviction. And when someone comes to me and tells me that I'm sinning against the Lord because I don't exclusively sing psalms in my church, I will tell them, you're not speaking the truth. History is not on your side, and the Bible is not on your side. I've had this in my ministry before, where people from that sort of background have come along to my church I've been quite happy for them to worship in my church but I've not been happy when they've tried to influence other people in my congregation against the singing of hymns 
telling them that the minister is wrong to have the organ and the piano. He's wrong to announce hymns to be sung. I think that's reprehensible. You should not do that. Do not try to cause or sow discord among the people of God simply because you don't agree with their conviction in this matter. Psalms only is not, men and women, the position of the Bible. And I have very good reasons for saying that. I will deal with this more fully in another message, but just to mention to you at this particular juncture, some of the words of Archbishop Trench in his synonyms of the New Testament. He says concerning the word psalm that's used here in Colossians 3.16, while the psalm, by the right of primogeniture, it's a great word, as being at once the oldest and most venerable, thus occupies the foremost place, the church of Christ does not restrict herself to such but claims the freedom of bringing new things as well as old out of her treasure house. She will produce hymns and spiritual songs of her own, as well as inherit psalms bequeathed to her by the Jewish church, a new salvation demanding a new song, Revelation 5.9, as Augustine delights so often to remind us. I was noting the words of Charles Hodge on Ephesians 5.19 speaking to each other and comparing Colossians 3.16 teaching and admonishing one another. He says here the early usage of the words Salmos, Humnos and Ode three Greek words for psalms, hymns, and songs, appears to have been as loose as that of the corresponding English terms, psalm, hymn, song is with us. A psalm was a hymn, and a hymn, a song. Still, there was a distinction between them, as there is still. A psalm was a song designed to be sung with the accompaniment of instrumental music. It was one of the sacred poems contained in the book of Psalms. It was also any sacred poem formed on the model of Old Testament Psalms as in 1 Corinthians 14.26 where Salmon appears to mean such a song given by inspiration and not one of the Psalms of David. A hymn was a song of praise to God, a divine song. Obviously, this is a huge subject, and as I say, we will come back to it, and we will say something more about it, because I think it's important that we do so. See, in our churches, we have to know exactly why it is that we do certain things, and why it is that we don't do certain other things. And when someone comes to me, or so someone says that if you're not exclusive Samaritan, that you're not obeying the scripture and you're going against what they will call the regulative principle of scripture, I'm here to tell you I will defend my position against that. 
So I've been singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs all my Christian life. And I look forward to going to heaven where we will not be singing psalms only. Because when they're at the sea of glass, according to Revelation 15, they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. I find that in Revelation chapter 5, those that are in heaven sung a new song. They were not restricted to the Psalms of David. There's plenty of evidence that even those who did sing Psalms in the New Testament days did not employ all of the Psalter for their singing. I mentioned this morning the songs of degrees. There were a number of the Psalms that were not sung. I also must say it's rather ironic that someone would sing the closing psalms of the Psalter where it mentions the timbrel and the harp and various other instruments and yet they demand that no instruments be used in the worship. So if they're going to tell me that that belonged to Old Testament worship, well then surely the psalm itself must belong to Old Testament worship and be dispensed with if what they're saying is correct. How can you be singing about the use of instruments if you're not allowed the use of instruments? But I digress. There's the way we sing. It's not only what we sing that we should be concerned with. It's not only why we sing, but we should be concerned with the way we sing. There's at least two things to note here. And you can note from these the attitude of worship. Singing, according to verse 16, is with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Or as it is in Ephesians 5.19, with melody in your heart. Now you may not have melody on your tongue, but you're to have melody in your heart. Here is a song in the soul. Here is a song in the heart. And this is the way we are to sing. We're to sing from hearts that believe in what we're singing. We've got something to sing about. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And I know that unsaved people could come to church and join in in singing in the hymns. But oftentimes what they're singing, they have no experience of. I have a song in my heart that, and I have a peace in my heart that the world never gave. A peace it cannot take away. Can you sing that? Can you sing, as our hymnal puts it, I am redeemed, O oh, praise the Lord, my soul from bondage free has found at last a resting place in Him who died for me. Can you sing redeemed how I love to proclaim it? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? There's so many hymns that are not the experience of a lot of people who sing. But here we are taught that the attitude of worship is really important. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing with melody in your heart to the Lord. And surely as we think about this, isn't this a rebuke to joyless worship? I know you don't necessarily have to have a smile that's from ear to ear when you're singing, but sometimes it's a good idea for 
your heart to let your face know that you're joyful when you're singing unto the Lord. Joyless worship. We shouldn't be engaged in that. We should rejoice with singing. Notice how the Psalms speak of this so much. For example, in Psalm 98, from verse number 4, the scripture records, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Oh, the joy that there is in our hearts. Because we have a song to sing that even the angels can't sing. The old 100, Psalm 100, what is it? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. It goes on, enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. Singing with grace in your hearts. With a melody in your soul. Here's the attitude of worship. But notice as well the way that we sing. Has to do with the aim in worship. Notice where this worship is directed. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts. Who to? To the Lord. To the Lord. Again, Ephesians chapter 5 makes the same point. Singing and making melody, verse 19, in your hearts to the Lord. To the Lord. This is the aim in worship. It's God-centered. And when you worship in private, your worship is to be God-centered. It's to be to Him. And when we sing together as a congregation, our worship is to be God-centered. The aim of our worship is the Lord. It's not what we get out of the service that we're so concerned about as to what God gets out of the service. We're singing to Him. We're praising His name. Oh, how this rebukes the religious entertainment shows of our day. CCM and all of that other nonsense with its concerts and its performances and high-priced tickets. This is something I'm totally opposed to. The whole concept of singing as entertainment. Ungodly people go to nightclubs. The Christians go to Christian concerts. It's the same idea. You look at the songs of Scripture, the singing in Scripture, it was for the purpose of worship and spiritual edification. Dr. Gardner of Chicago, many years ago, he said in appreciation of the hymn writer Philip Bliss, too often the Lord's house has turned into a concert hall and the service of song 
made a device for filling the pews. The minister comes to his duties in the pulpit after the world and the flesh and the devil have set things moving to their liking. Oh, how true that is. That which is properly a means of worshipping God becomes a form of entertainment. And it's so sad that this is the case. In Psalm 98, we learn again, as I said, the Psalms are filled with this idea. But in Psalm 98, we learn from verse 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvellous things. Verses 4 and 5, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. See that? Unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. It's not a performance. It's unto the Lord. And this is something you'll find throughout the Scripture. It was true of the song that was sung by the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1. It was true also in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22 and verse number 1 where the psalmist says this, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Singing unto the Lord. You know that much of today's so-called church music, it's neither appropriate for worship, nor is it edifying to the heart, nor is it glorifying to God. Oh, but look, what about the words? Listen, there's music that is acceptable to the Lord, and there's music which is unacceptable unto the Lord. Not just the words. The music... There are people today going around talking about singing gospel rap. If you look at the origins of rap music, you'll know that no Christian should have anything to do with it. Never mind employing it supposedly in the worship of God. The Bible speaks of singing a new song unto the Lord. Psalm 40 verse 3. The Lord also said, in an interesting scripture in the book of Amos, that there were certain songs that he didn't want to hear. Listen to this. Amos, chapter 5, verse 23. This is the Lord speaking. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Boy, is that appropriate to today. The noise of thy songs. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. That's music. Notice that. That's music he's talking about. Not the words only. Some of these big religious concerts are not occasions for the worship of God. They're occasions for the worship of the performers and the artists. That's what they're for. There are people from my part of the world called the Gettys. 
I've got no time for them whatsoever. I've got no time for them. The Gettys are involved in entertainment. If you ever look on YouTube, if you're foolish enough to do that, at some of these sing events that they organize. First of all, the tickets are astronomical in price. Unbelievable the cost to get into those things. But if you look at it, it's like a rock concert. And I think to myself, this is supposed to be Christian. No wonder the Gettys were just nominated for a Grammy Award. A Grammy Award? Do you know anything about the Grammys? The filth and the dirt that's involved with that? Including Satanism? There they are. Getting their prizes from the world. Let me tell you, anybody that gets prizes from the world like that, there's something wrong with what they're presenting. Something wrong with it. Radically wrong. I could say more about that. Some of these events are filled with people that are charismatics, neo-Pentecostalists, even those that are soft on Romanism. There was one man I looked up his bio at one of the Getty Singh events. He belongs to the Church of England and he's a papist. He has written devotions to Mary and to the saints. How is that Christian? The general atmosphere at these things is one of lightness and levity. Applause and shouting and screaming all over the place every time people sing a song. Clap, 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 clap. How is that the worship of God? It's not the worship of God, that's the worship of people. They're the ones getting the praise. It's foreign to Scripture. And such things will not benefit the work of God in the church of Jesus Christ. What is the aim of singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs? I say again, it is edification. It is teaching and admonishing one another and singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Oh, may our church music and our singing always be an exercise in worship of God, not an exhibition of worldliness. Our son-in-law was commenting on one of these so-called concerts recently. He watched a little bit of it, and he said to his wife, our daughter, that takes me back to the days before I was saved. This is what I used to listen to. This is the kind of music that I was dancing to. These people are supposed to be Christians. They says we were at a rave, but it's the same spirit that motivates it. It's the same stuff. And they can call it Christian. They can call it evangelical all they like, but it's from the same source. Oh, that the Lord would deliver us from false fire and enable us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yes, I do love the old hymns. And no, I don't want to replace the old hymns with some of these modern hymns that have been written. For every good one, 
There's 150 that are rubbish. Some of them are written in a particular way so that they'll be played in a particular fashion. They will suit certain types of music. That's why they're written in a certain way. To introduce a certain type of beat, a certain type of rhythm into the singing. You can see it, you can hear it. And there is in the churches, and I include in this many of our own churches, a desire for new things. Somebody hears a song for the first time. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Then that's all they want to sing. They don't want to sing anything else. They've got a handbook of about 20 songs, and that's all they ever sing. I've seen churches where they introduce a new hymnal, so that you've got the old hymnal in the pew and the new one. Guess which one gets used all the time? The new one. They hardly ever touch the old one, and eventually they gather dust and they go into the back room. That's how it works. That's how it works. Contemporary worship, traditional worship. You've seen this in churches. Oh, those old fogies. They like the traditional worship. So we'll let them have their service at 8.30 on a Sunday morning. Then when they all go home, then we'll have the real worship. Like one of our local churches down the road from where we live. They have what's called the heritage service and they have the horizon service. You know what that means? The heritage, that's the past. The horizon, that's the future. Here's the future. Get the rock bands in. Get the electric guitars and the drum kits. And the syncopated rhythm and the crooners with their mics swaying from side to side at the front. And we'll call that the future. Folks, it's the devil's device. That's what it is. It's the devil's device. And as long as I'm a pastor in this church, it'll never happen. By God's grace, may the Lord keep us pure. May the Lord keep us faithful. May the Lord help us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen.